0: I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, as we talk about the 10 benefits of the resurrection. I encourage you to take out your paper if you're a guest here today. I encourage you to take out the outline and fill in the blanks. You remember more by writing it down than just listening. And so I encourage you to do that as we talk about the greatest day in all of mankind's history. As we look up on the screen, i like to remind you that um, muhammad you can go visit his grave, and there it is, and he's still entombed there, and you can go to that famous religious site and visit there. You can go to Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha's grave. You can see where he is in repose. You can go to Confucius' grave in China. It's a great tourist place there, And you can see and visit where his remains are. But the great thing about Jesus is that you go to the Holy Land and you see a tomb that's empty because our Savior has risen from the dead. And that's what separates Christianity from all the religions of the world. And we need to be mindful of that. There's a great book and a great movie called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was a journalist, a legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, they had an encounter with a problem that their daughter got a jawbreaker stuck in her throat and a Christian nurse came and helped do the Heimlich maneuver and through that process, uh, Lee Strobel's wife came to faith in Christ. Well, this really unnerved Lee because he was an atheist. He was thinking of divorcing his wife, but as we're gonna see this little video clip, he was challenged by one of his coworkers at the Chicago Tribune to do something else rather than divorce his wife because she found faith in Christ. Let's play that video. One of my heroes was C.S. Lewis, a man who began as a skeptic much like yourself. At the end of his journey, you know what he said? He said if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important than the entire universe. So you want your wife back? Well, hey, guess what? People in hell want ice water. Not everybody gets everything they want. Stop blaming me and the church and God and do your job. Stack up the evidence, follow the facts, and write the story, win or lose. Wow, and that's at least drove on a journey for two years to disprove the resurrection, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, if you... This weekend, or watch The Case for Christ. Or I'd be glad to give you a copy of his book if you like, if you're a skeptic. And uh, just listen to his story. John Stott said this, Christianity in its very essence, a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Tim, Timothy Keller said this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Bernard Langer, since I'm a golfer, I had to put this one in. To a Christian, Easter Sunday means everything when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, but if there's no resurrection of the dead... Then, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't bodily come out of that grave, we may as well close our Bibles, throw them in the dumpster, and go off and close the doors of this church and move on. But everything in the Christian life hinges on the fact that Jesus rose physically from the dead. Take your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 24, if you would. Luke 24, as we unpack one of the gospel narratives very quickly today, describing this amazing event that occurred over 2,000 years ago. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. And these verses will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And then remembered his words. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. We see in the story of Luke 24, first of all, that the bedrock of our faith is found in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll see some liberal... Scholars will say he spiritually rose from the dead. And that's not significant enough because first of all, they have never found his body. But second of all, he had to rise from the dead physically to overcome death as one of the reasons that he did that. So the bedrock of our faith is found in the physical resurrection of Christ. And we see first of all, the discovery at the tomb. The discovery at the tomb. Now, if you have your Bible opening, your Luke 24, flip back to chapter 23 at the very end to get a little more context leading into the verses we just read. In Luke chapter 23, it says, Then Joseph of Arimathea took down Jesus on the cross and wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning the women who had come with them from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. You see, we see a hasty burial of Jesus' body due to the fact that it was getting close to sunset. And of course, this was the day of preparation and at sunset on Friday, the Sabbath begins and the Jews are not allowed to do any kind of work. So they had to hastily get Jesus wrapped up and into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that he lent for this experience. The women made note of where the tomb was and prepared to return on Sunday after the Sabbath to finish the burial process. Now we're back in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went back to the tomb after the Sabbath, taking the spices they had prepared And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Notice that they went. That refers back to chapter 23, the same women who be later identified in verse 10 of this chapter, who were at the tomb where they laid Jesus' body on Friday. And as the women were going to finish the burial rites for a Jewish person, I'm sure they were wondering, as they were walking to the tomb, who was going to moved the stone so they could get in there and uh, pour these spices and these perfumes on the body of Jesus. But it was sealed when they, they remembered it was sealed by the Roman guard, by the Roman Empire. Notice it's, it gives a specific time, the first day of the week, Sunday, early dawn, explaining that Jesus was gone already. You see, on the Jewish way of looking at days, Some have disputed that he was in the ground for three days. But the way the Jews looked at it, if any part of a day had sunlight, it was counted as a day. So Friday, he was buried just before sunset. He was in the tomb Saturday. And just as dawn was coming, he came out of the grave. The timing of the resurrection corresponds with the other gospel writers. And I want you to be clear that the stone was not rolled away So Jesus could get out. No, he already had gotten out. The stone was rolled away to show the evidence to the people who would come to the tomb that Jesus had risen. And so as the women, the disciples, and others would come, the goal was for them to come and see and to go and tell. Come and see and go and tell. And it reminds me of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. You read there about the shepherds. And the angels came to the shepherds while they were out in the field, told them, Go into Jerusalem and find this baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. And what did they do? They came, they saw, they worshiped. And then it says in Luke 2, they went out and told everybody what they had seen for themselves. That's the message for us as believers come and see, go and tell the world that Jesus is alive, that he's Lord. Well, they discovered the body of Jesus was gone. And this proved that Jesus was truly the Lord. In Ephesians 1:20, verses 20 through 21, Paul said that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come the lie was perpetrated by the religious leaders who crucified Jesus that the disciples had stolen the body away when it was discovered the tomb was empty the religious leaders paid off those guards and made sure they weren't executed because if you didn't if you were derelicting your duty to watch the tomb and the person escaped you were to be executed and so the religious leaders bought off The people that were going to do that and perpetrated the lie throughout Jerusalem that the disciples had stolen the body. The problem with that, though, is that Jesus would soon appear physically to the disciples and others in small groups. And then eventually, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, up to 500 people at one time. Well, not only do we see the discovery, but second of all, we see the declaration by the angels. The declaration by the angels. In verse 4 of Luke chapter 24, while they, the women, were perplexed about this, looking into the tomb, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Only in this narrative of the resurrection do we see mentioned two men and one spoke. Why do we think these men are angels? Well, first of all, as the women were there looking in, they suddenly appeared. These two men suddenly just came out of nowhere and were on the scene. Second of all, they had dazzling appearance. It was white and they had to look away from the appearance of these angels. And then they gave the women a message, an insight, to what had occurred at the tomb. As I mentioned, because of their angelic glory, the women had to turn away from their appearance. But the angel said in verse 5 to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now this was a mild rebuke to these women. It was a rhetorical question for them to think about. Uh, they had remembered they would have remembered that Jesus on several occasions had predicted his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and he was prompting them in their mind to think back to those things. But before the woman could respond, the women could respond. The angel continued to verse six with these words: "He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Notice the phrase in verse 7, this is key, must be delivered, must be delivered. The angel was saying that this was all a part of God's divine plan. Before the world was created, God knew that he was going to have to send his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the world's sins. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter believed and was indwelled with the Holy Spirit and became very bold in his first sermon to the Jewish people, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He was referencing as to what had just happened a short time ago. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In verse 22, it's saying that God attested or affirmed or stamped his approval on everything Jesus taught, including how to get into the kingdom, how to have eternal life, to know you're on your way to heaven. And he did that by raising him up from the dead, as was his plan. Well, the angel that spoke was saying to the women, you should have anticipated all of these events because Jesus predicted them. He predicted his passion, his torture, the crown of thorns, the trials, the cross, and even the resurrection. We see thirdly, the delivery, the delivery of the great news. These women were emboldened. They were excited. After talking to these angels and seeing for themselves, looking into the tomb, Jesus was gone. In verse 8, Luke 24, and they remembered his words, speaking of Jesus. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven And to all the rest, and now is Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The woman now vividly remembered the words of Jesus. In numerous places in the gospel, we could go if we had time and we could look time after time. Jesus is predicting that he's going to uh, die, be buried, and rise again in three days. In John chapter 12, you might remember that the woman broke the jar with very expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus, and he said it was in preparation for his burial. In John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples that his time was short. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete would come alongside and live within you and be the one to guide you and lead you in the future. In John 14, 29, Jesus said, And now I have told you before all this takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. You see, it wasn't just the empty tomb that would be the cause, that they would believe in Jesus as their Savior, although that was prolific in and of itself. It wasn't just the words of the angels although that was prolific as well. But it was the angels pointing to them to think about what Jesus said. It was Jesus' very words that reminded them of the power of that moment that he would come and rise again. The women ran back to the apostles and gave their report. And how did the disciples respond? Look at verse 11. It's astonishing. But these words seemed to the disciples as idle tale, and they did not believe them. Jesus himself would later rebuke the disciples for their lack of faith at the report from the women that the angel had told them that Jesus had risen. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at at a table. They were eating a meal. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Back to our story in Luke chapter 24 and verse 10, Luke records the names of these women who had gone to the tomb early in the morning. Mary Magdalene, who some espoused to believe that she was demon-possessed with seven demons, and Jesus had removed those demons from her. And because of that, she became a follower and a close partner in his ministry. She lingered at the cross. She helped in the burial process. We see Joanna mentioned here. We see Mary, the mother of James, and it says other women were a part of that. And just as a side note, we see throughout the Gospels, in the verses that Jesus talks about in his life and throughout his life, he always elevated women to a significant role. That's important. And we see Luke, the historian, recording their value, their worth, and their testimony. But the Roman Empire, they didn't look at it that way. They looked at women as property of the husband. They were to bear children and raise them up and take care of them. In fact, if they went to court, it would take the testimony of two women to equal that of one man. If a husband decided that he wanted to divorce his wife on the spur of the moment, he could do that with no repercussions. So you see, they didn't have really any education And they were totally submissive to their husband and to the culture of its time. But Jesus elevated their worth. The first people that came to the tomb to realize that Jesus had risen from the dead were women. And he sent them back, the angels did, to the disciples. We see lastly under this narrative, the delight of Peter, the delight of Peter. In Luke chapter 24, verse 12, Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The women sharing their experience with the disciples. They finally stood up and decided to go check it out for themselves. And they ran to the tomb, as we see in another gospel writing, but here in Luke it just records Peter going to the tomb. Notice Peter's response, he marveled. He marveled. He was amazed that the words that were given to him must be true. And over time, in a short amount of time, he became a believer. There have always been attacks on the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because, as we said, Christianity is like a house of cards, and everything depends on the resurrection. And if they can wipe out the resurrection as not being true, it takes away everything that we believe. You know, they believed uh, that the women, some believe and said that the women went to the wrong tomb. They didn't know where they were going. Well, guess what? We read Luke 23. They made note of where the tomb was before they came back on that Sunday. Some said that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was just in a comatose state. And that when they put him in that tomb, uh, because of the coolness and the humidity, his body revived and he was able to walk out. Well, the Bible teaches that a Roman guard came and stuck a sword in his side all the way up into his chest cavity where his heart was and water and blood came out. Now, I don't know about you, but if you can survive that wound, you're doing pretty well. We see also that his body was stolen, as we mentioned. That was one of the theories. And then the other one that's really amazing is the hallucination theory, that these people, disciples and others, were hallucinating about this Jesus coming back because They so much wanted that to be true. But how does 500 people hallucinate the same thought at the same time? If you're a skeptic or want more evidence, I encourage you, as we said earlier, to watch the movie Case for Christ. I'll be glad to give you a book. I've got several today to just challenge you and help you to see the truth of these things. The result of the resurrection of Christ was that the apostles... The women and the other followers of Christ all became excited witnesses for Christ because he's alive. And the apostles spread the gospel of Christ to the far reaches of the known world at that time. And not only that, but they died for their faith. How do you get 11 men willing to die for a lie? These folks died for their faith and their testimony of the risen Christ. And that has been passed down from generation to generation to where we sit today. It's estimated that there are 2 billion Christians, the largest uh, religion in the world is Christianity, who espouse faith in the risen Christ. Now, I don't know if all of them are truly believers in Christ, but they're trying to proclaim the bright witness of hope in a world that's looking for light. So here's your application. Are you certain of your faith in Christ because of the evidence of the resurrection? Are you certain of your faith in Christ because of the evidence of the resurrection? And there is a lot of external evidence that you could study for yourselves. We looked at some internal evidence evidence within the Bible. But now let's look at the application. How do we uh, see these 10 benefits of Christ rising from the dead and all that it promises to us who trust Christ as Savior? And we'll go through these very quickly. What are the benefits? Number one, a savior who will live forever. A savior who is at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding, praying for us even at this moment. That at one point will come and every name in heaven and earth and under the earth will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen one day and he will live forever. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You see, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There were numerous people in the Bible that had, they were, you know, rose from the dead. But guess what? They later died. But Jesus is the only one that rose and lives forevermore. When Jesus decided to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus declared to all who would hear, As he stood at Lazarus' tomb in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus gives you and I abundant life here on this earth. He gives us a purpose. He helps us understand why he created us. And when we connect with him and he's in charge of our life, he can direct us to the maximum potential for our life because he's the one that made us in our mother's womb. He also is present with us 24-7 in the form of the Holy Spirit, who guides us, who comforts us, who convicts us, who helps us understand God's word. A second benefit is an opportunity to turn away from sin, to turn away from sin. In Acts chapter 5, these words are recorded, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior. What was the purpose? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is walking in one direction away from God and stopping and turning and walking toward God. It's acknowledging that we need to change direction. The Greek word is metanoia. We get the word metamorphosis, and you see a picture on the screen of the process a caterpillar goes through. When he wraps himself up in a cocoon and over a period of time comes out a beautiful butterfly. That's our biological example of metamorphosis. That's what happens to everyone who trusts in Christ. That he takes our dead spirit and makes it alive and makes it beautiful just like he created it. Number three, an opportunity to become born again born again. In John 3, 3, Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, came to Jesus at night. He was curious about who this Jesus was. Was he really the son of God? And he asked him how he could know that he could have eternal life. And Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We have to be born again. You see, we're born once physically into this world. And we're born with this sinful nature. We have this selfish desire to do our own thing and do whatever we want when we want to. But if we don't come and receive Christ as Savior, then we're going to face two deaths. First a physical death and then an eternal death separated from God in a place of torment called hell. But if we're born twice or born again, born physically and then born spiritually when we receive Christ as Savior... We only die once. We die the physical death and then we have the hope of eternal life. In Titus 3, 5, the writer said, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. As far as God is concerned, before we come to the cross and put our faith in Christ, our spiritual life is dead. And when we cross the line of faith and receive the gospel message, we are made alive. We are regenerated. Excuse me, in our office in in there. And also downstairs, we have what's called an AED unit. And uh, Chuck Gibson has trained me and others here in our church how to use that unit over the years with CPR. And you know what that unit is? Many of you know what it is, is that when someone collapses and there's no sign of a heartbeat, you put the pads on there, you turn the machine on, and if it doesn't sense a heartbeat, it begins a process of shocking and doing things to try to revive the person and bring it back to life. That AED unit in our office, by the way, saved the life of one of our young men who now lives in Dallas, Texas. It literally saved his life. You know, think about that. When we receive Christ as Savior, he comes in with the pads, and he revives that dead spirit and brings it to life when we trust him as Lord and Savior of our lives. Number four, another benefit is an opportunity to be forgiven, forgiven. To me, this is one of the best benefits that I received when at age 14, I received Christ as Savior. As a teenager who was very rebellious against parents and authority, and feeling guilty all the time, when I came to faith in Christ, it was a breath of fresh air that I could have a clean slate and be forgiven. First Corinthians 15, 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's why the resurrection is so important for this point. Psalm 103:12: as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I don't know about you, but if you get on a plane and you keep flying east, guess what? You're never going to get to the west. That means forever that your sins are gone. In Micah 7, 19, I love this one, says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities or our sin underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the seas. First John 1, 9 says, If we confess, if we agree with God about our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all, A-L-L, all unrighteousness. Number five, another benefit is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Number six, an opportunity to be free from condemnation and shame. We sang about that in that first song, Glorious Day, that we break out of the the jailhouse, the prison, and our sins are forgiven and our shame is gone. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 34 of that same chapter, he said, who is he? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding or praying for us. The beauty of the cross of Christ is that Jesus took all the sins of the world upon himself. And if we break it down, he took the sins of each one of us individually upon ourselves. And I'm here to tell you today, if you were the only person on planet Earth that was alive and needed a Savior, Jesus would have died for just you on the cross. That's how much he loves us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The beauty of it is he took our sin and shame so that we could not be condemned anymore and the shame would be removed. As I've studied world religions, one of the greatest things about Christianity, unlike any other religion, is it removes the shame of what you've done in the past. You start out with a clean slate. In a novel, Remembering Wendell Berry, it talks about the story of a Kentucky farmer named Andy. And Andy was helping with a group of other farmers, this young farmer, bring in the harvest. And he was in charge of the corn harvest machine feeding the corn in. And somewhere along the way, the machine malfunctioned and his right hand got caught and he ended up having his right hand amputated. And he was so ashamed of it and so embarrassed, he wouldn't let anybody speak to help him be healed emotionally as well as dealing with the, you know, the after effects of what it is to lose your hand. But eventually, Andy found a friend, another farmer friend named Danny. And Danny, in this novel, it talks about by... Wendell Berry talks about Danny in a quote. They said they learned how to work together, the one-handed old man and the two-handed. They know as one what the next move needs to be. They are not swift, but they don't fumble. Danny says between us, we've got three hands. Everybody needs at least three. Nobody ever needed more. The very thing that brought him shame turned into something where he could be productive once again and find his worth in who he was. Number seven, an opportunity to have God with us at all times. At all times. I alluded to this earlier in the message. But Jesus said in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a promise that is. There's times in my life that I feel like I've I've sinned, I've been away from God. How could he really accept me once again? Some of you in this room may feel like that you've sinned too far for God's grace to reach down in his mercy to redeem you. But that's impossible. The Bible says that he will never leave us nor forsake us that he is seeking and searching, that anyone who wants to come to repentance can be saved. And for us as believers, it's a great promise to know that wherever we are, 24/7. if you're in the middle of the night and you wake up like I do sometimes at 3 a.m., you can pray to God the Father. If you're in a stadium with 30,000 people, you can pray to God the Father. If you're in China, if you're in Alaska, wherever you are, He is always with you because the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. Number eight, an opportunity to possess power over sin, self, death, and the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. So when he physically rose from the dead, he overcame sin, the power of sin, in our lives can be treated as if it's dead, like his body was in the grave. When he overcame death, it gave us the hope of eternal life and abundant life here on earth now. It gives us power to have self-control over our selfish desires. And it gives us power over the devil, who's the tempter, the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly going before God and See that guy, Ed Heading, down there? You see all the sins he does, and God the Father says, yeah, but he's covered in the blood of Jesus. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's also the deceiver, the liar. Number nine, the hope for a secure home in heaven. A hope for a secure home in heaven. 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know, that you might know, that you might know, that you have eternal life. It's like a contract. You can know with assurance and confidence that you have eternal life. In John 14, Jesus said just before he was preparing to go to the cross, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In verse six, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's many religions in the world. There's many committed people in the world to different religions, but Jesus is the only way to God the Father to give us eternal life. The last benefit we'll see today is a receiving of the gifts of mercy and grace. <clears throat> the receiving of the gifts of mercy and grace. The last section of scripture we'll look at today is in Luke 23. And you probably remember when Jesus was crucified, they put two thieves, two criminals on either side of him. <clears throat> Just before Jesus gave up his spirit, he had a conversation with these two criminals. In Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? In other words, are you not the Messiah? Are you not the one that could save us? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. When we receive the gift of mercy and grace, then we receive the full benefit of the resurrection that promises us to give newness of life. So our application is this. Are you receiving the benefits of the resurrection personally? Are you receiving the benefits of the resurrection personally? I close with this story. There's a story about a famous painting that was for a while in the Louvre Museum in Paris. It was a picture called Checkmate, and I think we have that picture. There it is, up on the screen. And you see the guy in green, that's Satan. And they're playing a Game of chess for the soul of the man uh, over on the other side. And in this picture, the title of the picture is Checkmate. And Frederick put this together and it was there. And one time there was this grand chess master, one of the best chess players in the world. And he was on a tour through the Louvre Museum. And the tour stopped at each painting and they stopped at this one. And the tour guide shared the history of it and all the things about the painting And then the tour took off and went to look at other paintings like the Mona Lisa that's also in that same museum. Well, this grand chess master, he stayed, and he was intently looking at this picture. And the curator, the one who was in charge of the museum, happened to be walking by and said, Sir, I think you're you're behind. You should be with your tour. And he says, No. He says, I need to talk to you for just a moment. He said, Either this picture needs to be taken down and repainted, Or the name of the picture needs to be changed. And he said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm a chess player. He says, if you look closely, he said, it's not checkmate. He says, the king, for the other guy, has one more move, and he will have checkmate. The king has one more move. Guess what? Jesus, on the cross, Satan was laughing. He was delighting. He was... He was scoffing. Jesus was buried. He was in the tomb on Saturday. But guess what? The king had one more move. He rose Jesus from the dead on Sunday. And if you're here today, maybe you're going through financial trouble, relational trouble, problems with your kids, whatever it may be, the king has one more move. No matter what you're facing, he can come in and and, and do the impossible, bring the miracle and take out what looks like an impossible situation, a checkmate place. I wanna challenge you today as we close to think about that, to think about your life and wherever you are, that there is one who has the power to transform and change the impossible in your life. There's a picture you'll see, I've been to this place twice in my lifetime, in Rio de Janeiro. Corcovado, the cross of Jesus over Rio de Janeiro with his arms open wide. As we come to the end of this message, I just want to remind you that Jesus has his arms open wide and he's willing to receive anyone who needs to have the gift of eternal life or also to come back to a relationship that maybe you've strayed away from for many years. See, the Bible teaches that all of us, as I said earlier, are born into this world The Bible says since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, that sin has passed through every human being through Adam. And you and I, we have this sinful nature that separates us from a holy God. But the good news is that it isn't about our works. It's not about church attendance. It's not about being generous or charitable. All those things are good. but it's not gonna earn our way to heaven. It says by grace, we're saved through faith, not of works, is a gift of God. And grace is receiving a gift. And what's the gift? The gift was Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood. When God turned his back on Jesus and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God couldn't look on his son because all the sins of the world were poured out on him. Can you imagine the son of God being forsaken by his heavenly father? But he did that and shed his blood so we can have the forgiveness of sin. And if we come to him humbly and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to turn away from it. I ask you to come into my heart and my life, and I'm going to move over to the passenger seat and let you be the driver, the leader in my life, and receive you for myself. You can have that knowledge, that confidence of eternal life. So let's bow our heads and our hearts for just a moment as we keep that picture of Jesus up there from Rio de Janeiro. I want you to think about your heart and your life. And maybe you're here today. And maybe you've never received Christ as your Savior. I'm going to pray a simple prayer with every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you're already a believer in Christ, be praying for those around you. But if you're here today and you've never received Christ, this is the greatest day in history. This is the greatest decision you will ever make. More important than who you will marry, what your job is, what your 401k is. This is to have the assurance of eternal life. And if you've never received Christ, just take a moment and pray these words. And these words are not magical. It's from the intention of your heart. And just say, dear Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws. And I ask you to forgive me of for my sins. I ask you to come into my heart, to be my savior, to take control of my life, and I surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, maybe you prayed that prayer today. I just wanna encourage you, if you would, to slip your hand up. Only myself and God will know, and I would love to pray for you anyone here prayed that prayer to receive Christ as Savior, it'd be a a sad thing if anybody left here today not knowing, not having a relationship with God the Father, anyone at all. And if you're a believer today, which many of us are, help us to be reminded of the power of the resurrection and be reminded that the King always has one more move, That no matter what situation you are in life, because the power that rests in you and the power of his word that he can do the impossible, do the miraculous, put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the resurrection story. It's powerful. It's good to unpack it every year. It's good to be reminded of what it means to us personally. Why? The why of the resurrection? why, and all the benefits that we possess. And Lord, I just pray that you'll be with each one of us, and Lord, help us to revel and marvel in the benefits that we've talked about today, but help us also to go out and share with others the hope that we have because of the resurrected Christ and the power that he gives us to overcome sin, death, self, and Satan as well. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.